Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. We've been covering the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show this week in Washington, D.C., where we met with Gabe Camarillo, the 35th Undersecretary of the United States Army. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's general meeting and trade show this week. We're sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Here's our conversation with Undersecretary Camarillo. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us and making time for us at a very, very busy AUSA. Vago, it's great to be here with you. It's good to see everybody back at AUSA in person. Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, and I'm glad that we're no longer uh, doing it via uh, Zoom. Um, we had an interesting conversation at your office uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, and you know this conflict that we're seeing between Russia and Ukraine is in many respects like the Spanish Civil War. Everybody on the planet is studying it. Uh, the, uh, pr- uh, the guys fighting it are drawing lessons learned, uh, and, and there's going to be a lot of dissection because just like then, there was an expectation there's, there could be a bigger war coming. And indeed, you're spending every waking moment of your time making sure you deter uh, a conflict from happening as opposed to having to engage it. What are some of the lessons you're learning about the performance of U.S. weaponry that is being used in high intensity um, in the ways that they were originally intended? Um, and, and what are the lessons then you're feeding back into the system about their efficacy, reliability, you know, a whole bunch of things that otherwise you were, you were doing on test ranges or limited shots, but certainly not in the rigors of an operational environment like this. I mean, this kind of a, a kinetic environment. Well, first of all, uh, it's great to be here again with you at AUSA. And I think to your point, there's a lot that we're going to continue to learn, even over the long term. I think lessons learned from Ukraine are barely starting to trickle in. I think we have a lot of analysis to do. But early on, I think there's some uh, initial insights that I think that we can draw from just in the last uh, several months. First of all, our systems continue to be the most effective anywhere in the world. Uh, we've had a lot of success, I think, delivering to the Ukrainians uh, the capabilities, whether it's the HIMARS, the 777s, the 155 ammo, all of the systems you hear and see about and how effective they are in the battlefield. I think that's demonstrating once again that our industrial base uh, and the Army are able to produce the best equipment anywhere in the world. Uh, Secondly, we're seeing the value and importance of logistics, which is one of the calling cards of the United States Army. Our ability to move equipment and materiel across the battlefield anywhere in the world is not only important in World War II or the battles of the past, it is going to be equally important for the Army of 2030 and beyond. So the importance not just of the ability to move the, the equipment, but also the C2 and the infrastructure that goes with that, our ability to utilize pre-positioned stocks, for example, very effectively to support Ukraine and to provide assurance to our NATO partners has been absolutely pivotal in the last few months. Um, let me uh, take you to um, administrative and supply chain lessons uh, we're learning. You know, you were, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, when we spoke uh, without giving anything away because it was a not for attribution conversation, but what you were learning about our own stockpiles and, um, and a whole bunch of work that you've launched since then. Um, talk to us a little bit about that stockpile effort 
um, what it means, what are the lessons you're learning, and how you're feeding that into, and, and I can talk, we'll talk about the replenishment of those thoughts in a second, but let, let's, what, what are some of those lessons that you're, you're learning about, about the, the stocks, how to use them, stewardship, et cetera? Well, absolutely. I think um, you know every few years we begin to understand the importance, for example, of our munitions capabilities, uh, the importance of not only resilience in what we have, but also um, being able to provide the best training of the equipment that we currently provide, not only to our soldiers, but in this case to the Ukrainians. So it is the complete combined uh, package. So it's not just the material, it's the training that goes with it. It is the ability to do logistics resupply. All of that integrates together to provide the capability that's decisive on a battlefield. I think that's one of the things that we're validating just by watching the Ukrainians perform today. It's being very effective uh, uh, in, uh, in, in that part of the world. I think for us as institutional army, we're recognizing that we can't over time let our foot off the gas uh, in certain aspects of our portfolio. Uh, we found when we look back at pre-9-11, there really hadn't been a lot of investment in the munitions industrial base and its ability to reconstitute was somewhat challenged right after 9-11. We're finding that we're in a very similar set of circumstances with the surge of requirements that came after uh, the invasion of Ukraine in February of this year. Uh, once again, I think we're learning different ways to posture ourselves for resiliency in the future. Um, replenishing uh, stocks uh, is is part of it, right? Stock stewardship. So, right, you did draw a lot of lessons for, you know, hey, like, some of this stuff is expiring, right? So expiry management uh, almost where, um, you know, when you're digging through bins at this level, you, you might have missed it. Um, Walk us through what the plan is to replenish these munitions because uh, some in industry look at the army and they say, look, you guys are not spending money or the department's not spending money, you're taking it out of inventory. But the thing is, you're also going to have to replenish stocks, not just um, you know, for ourselves, but also all of our allies and partners depend on us for these munitions as well. What's, what's the plan? Because you also said that you guys are making enormous progress all across the force in sort of thinking through various different pieces of this puzzle. Well, the first step to all of that is to make sure you get the money. And I really want to thank the support from Congress to be able to provide it. Uh, both direct uh, support to the Ukrainians through the uh, USAI initiative, and then, of course, through our uh, reimbursement of our presidential drawdown authority. So we've gotten, I, bet, I think, in the order of $6 billion that we've been able to put against uh, resupply of our munitions uh, stockpiles. The second part of it is working very closely with the industrial base to find creative ways to uh, immediately reconstitute what we've used, whether it's opening up second lines of production, alternate sources of supply for critical components, um, dealing with our obsolescence management in very creative ways. I'll give you one example. Uh, for our Stingers, for example, our Army's organic industrial base was able to take some of the older Stinger models, take components out, and use them on other Stingers to be able to um, avert obsolescence and make more quantities that were able to be used in the battlefield today. That's the kind of ingenuity that you see when a requirement is very urgent uh, and there's a need. I think we need to continue to do that. I think we need to continue to uh, work with our industrial base to be able to posture them for success and to be able to overcome, as you said, the surge of requirements we've got. I know we're going to get there. I'm very confident in our in our ultimate success. And uh, you know, the industrial base knows how to do this very well. 
uh, what they need are the resources and the ability to uh, to be able to take this challenge on. And, and when are these contracts going to start flowing, right? I mean, for example, each one of the companies will say, hey, look, I can start making more HIMARS. Uh, I can start making Stingers. Uh, that was a, uh, a high-profile visit where the president went to the Javelin facility, but we're not going to see weapons come out of there for a couple of years. Same thing with Stinger, where we're going to have to restart production. Um, how soon will it be before you start to issue some of these bigger contracts? And do we need to consider facilitizing for 24-7 production operations, as opposed to just, you know, well, we're going to get boutique quantities of these weapons over the next couple of years. It's a whole host of uh, mitigation steps that the Army is undertaking to kind of uh, tackle this challenge. Uh, first of all, we have let some of the contracts already using the resources that Congress provided as part of the supplementals. Where we can, we're using existing contracts, which limits and, and actually eliminates uh, the need to get onto a new contract to uh, surge production. Third, uh, one of the things we're doing is, you know, for especially for demand from FMS, looking at non-domestic sources of supply. If we're going to give capability to Ukraine or to any of our other uh, NATO partners, we might look for other production facilities elsewhere in the world that can generate uh, munitions that are comparable to the ones that they want. Uh, all of these happening, are, are these efforts are happening at the same time, uh, interchangeably and collectively. They're going to be what's going to help us get over the hump. Let me uh, ask you, you know, the, the, the replenishment of stocks, um, as, as you mentioned, is also an opportunity to modernize. Um, are these the kind of munitions we need? Do we need better munitions, different kinds of munitions? The Army uh, has just issued uh, its latest doctrine, 3.0. Uh, that's what the Army does, generate doctrine. Uh, what, you know, I, I know that uh, you were not sort of intimately involved in it, and it's not necessarily your bailiwick, but you have to now start to deliver against that new doctrine. What are some of the attributes of this new doctrine that is going to be consuming your attention in terms of deliverables, whether it's in terms of capability, resourcing, uh, you know, human capital management and, and the like, all the things that are in your wheelhouse? Yeah, well, you know, the, the beauty of being undersecretary of the Army is that it all is under my, my wheelhouse. Uh, but I'll give you three examples of the new field manual where it's going to affect us. The ability, first of all, to uh, develop deep sensing capabilities. As the Secretary said this morning in her AUSA speech, to see farther, more persistently, and more reliably than we ever have before. That's going to be so important, not just for our intel requirements, but also for our ability to conduct long-range fires, which, as you know, uh, under our new national defense strategy, and as the Army not only looks at Europe, but also as Pacific, uh, as that pacing challenge, an area where we're going to need to continue to invest. Secondly, the ability to enable decision dominance, uh, which is combined information that's converged on the battlefield at the right level for large-scale combat operations. Uh, that's something the Army is learning a lot about, not only in the field manual, but also what we're seeing right now in Europe. Uh, the ability to, with 18th Airborne Corps, for example, to leverage commercial technologies uh, and commercial SATCOM to be able to very quickly process and transmit data uh, across the uh, potential battlefields of Europe in the future. So those are two examples. The third one that I would give you, of course, is the long-range fires themselves, which we need to continue to develop and to better utilize. All of this under the field manual will help us converge decisive forces at the, using the division as a unit of action at the right point in time of our choosing. The long-range uh, precision fire debate in the 30 years of my career uh, has been a source of much debate and discussion among the military services, specifically uh, the United States Army and the United States Air Force. Um, you now have a West Point uh, graduate who used to be also your former boss, uh, Frank Kendall, who is now the Secretary of the United States Air Force. How are you guys dividing this, right? Understanding roles and responsibilities of each of the services. 
so that you duplicate maybe in a constructive way, but not in a counterproductive fashion, right, of sort of wholesale duplicating capabilities, given that the Air Force, for example, is investing in air-breathing hypersonics, which are, you know, greater volume fires, less expensive, for example. Nobody's saying that we still don't need a prompt global strike, which you can use, but once you get into long-range volleys, that's kind of an expensive way of doing business. What are some of these lines, and, and the United States Navy has awesome capabilities, force sensing, space force sensing. How are you guys blending this so that you're not reinventing, an, you know, an arm, a joint force within the Army, but actually leverage each of the services and then export some of that capability you're developing to them? Thanks, Paco. It's a great question. So I think we all have to be mindful of the fact that we uh, are part of the Joint Force. So it is not an Army mission uh, that we uniquely define by ourselves, but we do it as part of the Joint Force fighting concept. So for example, in the Indo-Pacific re region, our ability to provide long-range fires is limited to those areas where they're going to be a decisive uh, effect against traditional A2, AD uh, defenses, where the Air Force or, any, or the Navy would not otherwise have immediate access to. We're going to contribute that as part of the joint fight if we need to in that part of the world. And I think it is one other layer of attack that is going to be very decisive uh, where it might create a capability, especially as we develop, for example, our PRISM uh, INCOR missile, which is going to have a range of up to 1,000 kilometers, uh, which will be very effective potentially in battlefields in the future. That combined with the capabilities that the Air Force provides, which are closer in, uh, maybe lower cost, as you mentioned, and those provided by the Navy, combined to form a range of options for combatant commanders to use. Speaking of range of uh, options, uh, the JAT C2 program has been ongoing for some time. Um, we have now uh, crossed the Rubicon. Secretary Hicks, uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks, uh, made the decision. The requirements will be generated by the Pacific. Uh, Dr. Craig Martell's shop is the focal point we're, uh, reporting directly to her uh, in order to drive this. And when I've spoken to your counterparts uh, in the other services, there, there is remarkable agreement on JADC2, Army's ver uh, version of that is Project Convergence, Project uh, Overmatch, and obviously ABMS on the Air Force's side. Um, talk to us about where we are, where we're going, the Army's role of this, and as importantly, not just what you're doing, but what you're not doing. I remember Secretary Kendall saying, everybody doesn't have to be connected to everybody at all levels, right? I mean, we were trying to create something that maybe was not. From your standpoint, where are you, where are you going in the Army's role in it? Right, and Secretary Kendall's spot on on this. I mean, I think you have to remember that uh, joint all domain command and control of all of our systems across all the services in the joint fight it is an insurmountable problem. It is the biggest system of systems engineering challenge, if you define it that way, that the world has ever seen. Uh, I always call it, you know, boiling the ocean. We can't do that. I think it would be very, very difficult for us to even define an architecture where all of that could be done. So I think what uh, Secretary Hicks has done is to define very specific ways that we're going to tackle this problem set. You know, first and foremost, we're going to work on an integration layer of data that is going to provide the right uh, interfaces, the right sharing of data across the battlefield that's necessary uh, for those mission sets that are priority set by uh, you know, the Joint Force and by OSD. Secondly, we're going to make sure that we do experimentation, like Project Convergence and what the other services are doing as well, uh, to ensure that we can get after this problem set. It has to be something digestible. So for the Army, I would say that we are very much in line with Secretary Hicks's vision uh, and her guidance. And what Project Convergence is trying to do is not boil the ocean. It is looking at really a couple of problem sets that are really critical. First and foremost, 
how do we provide a theater level command and control common operating picture that will be relevant in decisive battlefields of the future and most importantly focus on a joint fires control network that would be enabling interfaces at that right critical operational level which as we know in the army it's at that level of the division and it's comparable equivalents for the joint force and the other services we're just focusing on that problem set so pc22 project convergence is focused on experimenting and proving out what capabilities and interfaces are needed just for that problem set. We're gonna focus on that. And I think if we get that right, a lot of the kill chains, uh, you know, command and control systems that would be involved, it is something that we can actually tackle and put our arms around as a problem set. And then beyond that, we'll continue to experiment. But the important part is we're trying to bring into the Army our uh, fellow services to be part of Project Convergence, and I'm very pleased to say that all of them are participating in this year's uh, Project Convergence, as well as some of our partners and allies. Uh, in PC-22 in particular, we have uh, you know, the, the Brits and the, uh, the Australians who are both participating uh, in this year's exercise. We need to build out from that success, but we need to focus on that initial problem set that to me is most foundational to getting what the deputy sees as the vision for uh, the future state. Um, and, uh, you know, it, A, it's uh, kudos to you for bringing allies and partners into, uh, into this from the outset, uh, because obviously we've seen interoperability gaps uh, develop as a consequence of that. Uh, and then, um, you know, the challenge that you guys have is really unique. You have more radios than anybody else on the planet that you have to interconnect. So your challenge is a very, very different challenge than, than those of the other services. Lightning round, because uh, I think I'm going to get the hook. Um, uh, 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 lightning round. Uh, Futures Command, um, yes. a lot of debate um, when it was founded about whether it was necessary, uh, given that the training and doctrine, that there were those who said, hey, why don't you just reform TRADOC as opposed to create a new organization. Um, Secretary Wormuth has indicated, um, has raised some very important questions about the future of the command. What is the future of the U.S. Army Futures Command? Well, first of all, uh, Army Futures Command was an important development, and both Secretary Wormuth and I are, are glad that it exists. I think if you recall the development process for getting new capabilities into our, our soldiers' hands, you have to first have a requirement, and then you have to develop a capability to field it. If you don't get the requirements part right, you're never going to get a capability that's going to make a difference and be decisive on the battlefield. And in the past, when uh, requirements was part of TRADOC, it competed with a whole host of other uh, priorities and agenda items for that organization, rightly so. Uh, the beauty of having Futures Command as now an enduring command for the Army is you've got an entire four-star command that's focused on one thing, developing those requirements for capabilities that are going to be used by soldiers in the future, and defining the warfighting concepts and the, the system requirements that will be part of that. So having, uh, for example, General Rainey there as the new commander with his background, having worked at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, uh, CAC, I think is going to be really helpful for him. Having been the G357 of the Army, he brings also operational expertise as a former division commander. Uh, he knows what those requirements need to be for the future, and he's got a lot of experience from being the former CAP commander in work on designing the future uh, of what the Army is going to fight like. That is exactly what we need to force our command to do, and that's where I think in the past, if you go back maybe 10, 20 years, uh, there really wasn't as much emphasis on future system requirements as there should have been. This is the greatness about having AFC as, a, as an enduring command in the Army. Um, two uh, questions. One, um, you were uh, part of an administration that was scarred because of the Budget Control Act. Uh, it, it, 
31 trillion dollars in debt, uh, debt ceiling increase coming up. It snowballed uh, the last time into the Budget Control Act. Um, are you concerned as a senior leader uh, that we might end up in a similar kind of situation again uh, over the coming months and years that could really have a devastating impact on the nation's ability to prepare, to continue to deter uh, a very aggressive adversary? Well, I can assure you that any leader in the executive branch of our federal government probably has that concern. Uh, you know, we all depend and rely on budget certainty uh, and predictability to be able to plan for future requirements. And for us, we're dealing with the security of our nation. Uh, we certainly know that the Army is working really hard to take care of our people, modernize the force for the first time really in 25 years, and at the same time ensuring a high level of readiness uh, the way to what we can meet uh, requirements and, and uh, meet challenges anywhere on the globe, whether we're doing uh, you know, disaster relief, uh, we're performing that in response to Hurricane Ian, or we're providing support, of course, to our NATO partners in Europe. All of that takes resources to do, and we're doing our best to balance that. We've had a lot of success in maintaining continuity on the high-level investment of all three of those pillars. We'd like to do more, uh, but we will continue to focus on doing it as much as we can get the resources that the Army needs. There is a lot of debate. I mean, obviously, wars are decided on land. That's where people live. Um, when you look at a variety of Pacific scenarios, it does become much more of an air and naval theater with a lot of very important uh, army capabilities in there, whether air and missile defense, whether it's the backbone logistics that uh, the force provides. I mean, the Army Materiel Command is one of the most extraordinary organizations on the planet uh, because it does things nobody else on the planet can do. Um, from your standpoint, how are those debates and discussions going? Because there are those who make the case that, look, you know, the, the Army should shrink in order to make more top line available for uh, the Navy and the Air Force uh, to accelerate some of the systems they're doing. How are some of those debates and discussions going? Because the Army then makes a case, well, look, I mean, ultimately, we also need the, the force structure, uh, the, the capacity to be able to, for example, continue to deter in Europe while also uh, engaging elsewhere in the world. How are those discussions going? Well, and, and, and what is the role of the Army as you would d d define it in a Pacific scenario? So, so the role of the Army is quite significant, not only in the Indo-Pacific region, but across the world. And I'll just say that it's definitely true that uh, as we're responding to the National Defense Strategy, the Army is a supporting force to the Joint Force and our other fellow sister services in that particular region. As I said, our main roles are to provide uh, support for contested logistics, long-range fires, and protected communications. And we will do that uh, as part of the National Defense Strategy to support our, our, uh, our sister services. But beyond that, before there is a stage of conflict, uh, and we hope that there never is, there's still a, an era where we are looking at integrated deterrence, our ability to campaign and provide assurances and build partnerships and, and alliances in that region. And I think the Army has a tremendous role to play there. For example, this last year alone, we've in the last two years, we have significantly scaled up our Pacific Pathway exercises involving dozens of uh, nations in the Indo-PACOM area and certainly uh, developing relationships with many of those militaries all over that region, many of whom only have an army. And so the ability to conduct exercises together with them, uh, you know, not only creates uh, deterrent capability for the United States, but also uh, creates partnerships that we hadn't had before. So even up to the stage of conflict, I think that there is a significant role for the Army to play. Beyond that, as you know, uh, the demand for what the Army does never uh, abates. Uh, in the last year, whether it's Operation Allies Welcome, 
the unexpected surge to provide support in NATO for our NATO partners, uh, or more recently, uh, response to Hurricane Ian that I mentioned earlier, we continue to do and respond to requirements that we had not planned for. So in terms of uh, the demands of the Army, uh, it never, it's actually going up. It's not coming back down. Uh, so I think the case in many ways makes itself. Are you satisfied with where you are on cybersecurity? I mean, obviously, this has been a focus for everybody. Uh, more Russian activity aimed at uh, some of our networks. Obviously, the Russians will find ways to retaliate against us. Um, I know that this has been, it's a never-ending uh, journey, but I know the administration has been uh, pushing on this as a national priority. What are you guys doing in the Army on the Army piece of it? So first of all, we're, I, I'm much more comfortable now than it was when I last left the Pentagon, but I think we have a long ways to go. Uh, certainly the, the level of sophistication of our cyber capabilities, uh, our defenses, our trained personnel, both in uniform, civilian and contractor, uh, it is truly uh, world-class and utterly impressive. So that's the part that gives me a lot of confidence. Uh, the parts that we still need to tackle, of course, is making sure that we're uh, using best of breed technologies to you know, continue to evolve, continue to iterate because the threat continues to evolve very quickly. So we can't rest on our laurels. Secondly, we got to make sure that we're uh, embracing, for example, zero trust architectures, which is a key component to enabling our uh, information infrastructure to be truly resilient and secure in the future. And third, we got to make sure that we continue to attract the best talent. Because as you know, to make all of this work, we've got to get the nation's smartest minds to continue to work on behalf of the Army in support of our national defense. So if we do those, those things, I think we'll be in a much better place. Sir, thanks very much. It's always an honor and pleasure to see you and uh, keep breaking the leg on the job. Thank you so much, Baco. It's great to be with you.